Welcome to a special edition of the Truth for the Matterverse podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan, and I'm here with our special guest. But before we introduce and welcome him appropriately, let's begin by recognizing and appreciating all of our new and consistent listeners. We thank you all in advance for continuing to press play at your own convenience. Now, if you're a first-time listener of the Truth for the Matterverse, we want you to know that our podcast is all about providing an honest, contextual, historized, philosophical, and psychological view of the Bible through the use of hermeneutics while sharing some personal experiences with myself and Daniel, and of course, with our guests. We believe in applying God's word to everyday life. Today, we will praise God for another new testimony that we will hear. We hope that after hearing this man of God and his journey, that you will be encouraged and uplifted. We hope that you will see how an encounter with Jesus Christ will guarantee that your life will not be the same. Now, without further ado, let's invite our special guest in, Branch Isole. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Jonathan. I'm well. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so if there was something that you would say, what are three things that you pondered upon this morning when you woke up? Oh, what a great question. Um, You know, I'm blessed that I don't have a day job. My entire uh, vocation is is writing. And so each day when I wake up, I have the pleasure of, first of all, connecting with the Lord um, without a time limit. And so I, I always begin my morning with a conversation with him and rely on him to guide me through the day. Uh, the second thing is I raise chickens, and so uh, I'm always outside early with nature and with my girls, my birds, and they always keep me grounded to their needs and, and in their fundamental basic needs of food and water and a clean coop. It reminds me of the basic necessities you know, of life and, and how humbling it can be to address and actually honor the simple things in my life. And the third thing is I always get prepared for my day, uh, whether that be writing or podcasting or guesting. And it allows me to think about how am I going to approach today and what can I give to the world and give back to the world and the people that I come in contact with. So those are sort of my three basics of Let's get up and, and get the day going. Wow, beautiful. I agree with everything that you said. Very powerful. So here are some facts about Brant's Isole for those who are curious before we get into the conversation. He's an author. He's a poet. He's a storyteller. He's actually an author of 22 books. Some of the topics that he writes about are choices and consequences, accepting or avoiding personal responsibility, and the power of truth. Branch teaches corporate sales and marketing because he's actually a founder and partner of five small businesses. Branch graduated from Texas State University and did a postgraduate work at the University of Houston. He holds a Oxford MA theology degree from Trinity Bible College. Now, if you don't mind me asking, what did you major in your undergrad? Actually, I, I majored in um, social sciences and then, of course, education, because I became a classroom teacher out of college. 
Okay. Cool. So before we dive into more of your expertise and the story behind you, the Truth of the Matter is podcast likes to invite the Holy Spirit into our conversation. So we like to do that through prayer. So anyone that's listening, bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us. This stage, this platform to voice your, our thoughts, our ideas, our concerns to you, Lord. We thank you for another day. Blessed Lord, for we give to you glory, honor, and praise. Lord, as we enter into today's discussion, we invite you into our conversation. Lord, you said anytime two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. So I ask that you open up all eyes to see your ways, Lord, all ears to hear your truth, Lord, all hearts to receive your light, and all minds to understand the impact that you can have on, you know, individual journeys as well as the body of Christ as a whole. Lord, we thank you for Brandsize Esole. As he speaks as a child of yours, we pray. And we ask that, we, that all that are listening can listen carefully and can learn and can leave with a different perspective and the impact that you can have on an individual. Lord, we pray for the listeners to be inspired, motivated, encouraged by his testimony. And Lord, all those things and all those things we say in agreement, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so Branch, I, I guess the first question that comes to my mind is, where were you raised? Where were you born? Well, actually, I was born in Japan. Uh, my father was in the military, and um, after the Second World War, he was stationed overseas. So I was born in Japan. I grew up in a military family, so we traveled quite a bit. You know, um, every three or four years, we were moving. I lived in several different cities and several different countries. I actually went to high school uh, in Germany and then finished high school in California. Uh, after, Cal after California's high school experience, I went to school in Texas to go to college. And then out of college, I went into corporate sales and marketing. Uh, from that experience, which was great from a worldly possession and accumulation standpoint, but wasn't real great for my own mental health i got out of the corporate world and went into small business and was the partner and founder of five different small businesses over the next 20 years mm -hmm. so let me ask you this out of all the places that you had some experience in what can you tell us a little bit about each place and what were some of the positives and negative experiences that you had in those locations and areas and were there any limitations while being in those places uh sure there were uh limitations mainly from my father actually because in the military um the any activities of the child is reflected upon and responsibility of the parent who's in the military so the great thing about being in the military for me as a family dependent was the ability to travel and, of course, be exposed to different people, different cultures, uh, different places in the world. That's an education in itself. The uh, negative is, wasn't so much for me, but for a lot of families and family members is the constant travel and the constant moving. You know, when you're in the military, or at least 
in those years, every three or four years, there was the possibility of changing locations. So with that situation, you know, you always have to be ready to move again. And that means new schools, new friends, you know, new languages, new situations. So that can be difficult, you know, in your formative years. Um, as I say that the hardest part for me was I had a very strict military oriented father. And in that situation, like I say, whenever you do something that is not, you know, socially acceptable or legally acceptable, if, if you get out of line and you're a rebel, then any consequences that would come to you actually go onto your father's record. So your behavior as a military dependent can be reflected on your father's um, promotion abilities. So, you know, if, if you're not a, a great kid or a well-minded kid, if you cause a lot of trouble, it can keep, it can hamper your father's military advancement and career. So in that situation, I grew up in a very strict household. want to talk about attached to the hip that's i can see that so any locations or sightseeing in these different areas that you appreciated when you were young and probably revisited as you got older well i didn't have a chance to revisit but obviously being overseas in germany in my junior high and high school years was a real experience it was great um you know unlike the states europe is very small geographically and because I was in Germany, sort of in the middle of Europe, you could get anywhere in Europe within about 12 to 15 hours driving. So that afforded a lot of opportunity to go to, you know, London and uh, Switzerland and Austria and a lot of old ancient cities and, and just a, a whole different experience in terms of, you know, fundamentally supplementing your education. Uh, I went to a high school, American high school. So all of the, you know, classmates and things were a miller, military family members, but you go right offside the base and you're into an entirely different world, you know, different culture, uh, different community. And so you get exposed to all of that history and culture that's been, you know, there for hundreds or thousands of years. So that's something that if you embrace, you know, you can find a lot of meaning to it. That being said, the reflection of that importance of that meaning doesn't actually come until later in life when you're, you know, a little more attuned to what's going on in the world, the global community, and being able to reflect on having been to and seen different things that are in the news today uh, gives a whole different sort of perspective behind the scenes, behind the story. So it's just a different kind of experience that aids one's education if you choose to embrace it. Uh -huh. So would you say, did you pick up or desire to learn any languages in these areas? And what about the foods or the the shows, the music? Any anything that you recall that you actually were very interested in and you explored? Well, I, I took German in school, so that was my foreign language. Um, 
The food was great. The interesting thing was when I lived there in the early 60s in Germany, um, there were still places in that country that had not rebuilt from the war. So you could go into cities and see rubble and destruction that was still, you know, right there on the block that hadn't been rebuilt yet. So it was a different time than it is now in Europe, obviously, 50 years later. And being there immediately after the fallout of World War II, the culture, the German culture, was just trying to rebuild itself. And as, you know, an occupying or, or friendly occupying uh, military there, it gave us a, an opportunity to not only see how cultures survive tragedy, but also the things that sort of mold the next generation. I went to Berlin about three weeks after the Berlin Wall was built and uh, got to go into East Berlin that was occupied, obviously, as the capital of East Germany. And that area was still completely bombed out from the war. So at that time in the early 60s, um, it was, you know, much, much different. It was a real eye-opener to see that much destruction still, you know, in there. Uh, while I was there, I saw John F. Kennedy. He came to visit and did his uh, I Am a Berliner speech and ended up, you know, coming into and leaving from the airport where I lived. So that was a great experience. And so those kinds of things, you know, reflecting on history now gives a much better sense of behind the scenes because there's been such a, a change and a difference in, you know, the geopolitical structure of the world between then and now. It's just a real experience, um, you know, real blessing to be able to experience that and grow up when so many world-changing things were happening. Uh -huh. And it would be remiss if I don't ask a little bit about Japan. What were your takeaways, you know, being there? No, I was just an infant there. I, I was only there for a short time uh, after my father's. Uh, yeah, I was, I was born there. Uh, we've got home movies and that kind of thing. Uh, it was, you know, from the movies, it was very different. I mean, it was literally right after the war ended, uh, 45 to 48, 49. And it was um, real third world kind of country situation there. But I was just an infant, so I didn't experience, you know, a memorable uh, time there. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it will be something to ask, was your father a believer, a Christian? Or no, that wasn't present. Well, that's a great question. Um, we were raised as Christians, but but I like to say we were C E and O, Christmas, Easter, and occasional. You know, we weren't church attenders. Um, my parents, I guess you could say they were believers, but they weren't practicing Christians. You know, they they didn't embrace the spirituality of Christ in their lives. They had a cognition of the Holy Trinity, but it wasn't something that was forefront mm -hmm. in their minds as practitioners or as parents. And so uh, I was lucky enough 
to attend again when I was in Germany, a little bit older, I attended church, the Episcopal Church at that time, uh, a little more often, and was blessed enough to be confirmed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But also for me, you know, because it wasn't part of my childhood experience, other than an acknowledgement of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we weren't practicing Christians. It wasn't part of our daily life and our daily routine. Uh, it was sort of one of those, well, we believe and, you know, that's that's good enough for right now. Mm. So, I don't know, are they still alive, both of them, or have they passed? No, they both passed. Mm-hmm. Do you Do you remember or recall... Did things change before they passed or it kind of remained the same up until that they uh, passed? With them? Yeah. Like, do you do you think that their relationship with God changed or matured before they passed? Or do you think that it's been quite a bit of the same since you were in your youth to where you are now or at an older age? Do you think anything changed? Well, that's interesting because I left home at 16 and my guess is from the limited experience that I had with them as adults, no, it didn't change. You know, they they believed in uh, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ and I, I guess they believed in eternal life, but I never saw a cognition and embracing you know, of their religious belief or their spirituality while I was alive. I mean, while they were alive and the few times that I was with them, you know, after leaving home. Okay. Because I always ask that because sometimes, at least for me, I think it's it's essential and it's important that once you become assimilated into the belief, I think, there needs to be an intention and a response to the gospel. And sometimes that can be kickstarted by just dialogue, reminders, conversations, initiative. And I think that sometimes it's a responsibility almost that if there are some who are, you know, based upon the respect, the mutual respect and relationship that you have with a person, that if there's anything that you can do to inspire or motivate but to get the full experience of Christ at a much more deeper and profound way, sometimes those things can happen and can help stir something within a person that can lead them down a path to further explore their relationship with God. So I always wondered, with you now going to theology, we'll get into that in a second, and studying God, I always want, I was wondering if there was some sort of conversation, was there some sort of thing that you had with them that inspired them to take it a step further beyond what they had did in their limited capacity and where how far they wanted to go. So that's why I was curious to, to know if there was something there that might have happened. So what made you want to go to theology school? And one what is one thing you can tell those that are aspiring to go to theology that they might not know by going Well, what inspired me, you know, when I was young, out of college, I was full on embracing the ways of the world. I mean, uh, pretty typical in terms of going into the area of sales and marketing. You know, that's a high achievement 
high goal, high aspiration kind of career, very competitive, no matter what the industry is. And so in that scenario, for me, and for a lot of people, you know, your focus is laser tight on success, and what that means in the world's uh, scenario and situations that you find yourself. So I was very successful in the sales and marketing corporate world. Uh, I, I was a successful salesman, then I was a successful regional manager. And out of those successes, you know, came that cycle of feeding the desire and the accomplishment and the next challenge, the next desire and accomplishment, and ever moving upward on that ladder. What I found out of that experience, however, no matter how successful I was in my job, in my career, uh, the cost to me in my family and in who I was myself was very deep. You know, it was, it was a real yin and yang, success in one area, failure in the opposite area. And so after 15 years in that cycle of success in my corporate world, my corporate life, and basically devastation in my personal life, I knew that I had to make a change. And so at that time, I decided that I had been living a lie in terms of who I was. You know, every day when I would leave the house, I'd put on my world mask and go out and try and be who I thought the world was anticipating me to be. And like many people in the corporate struggle, you know, the success was in the uh, conquering and the vindication of the things that I had to say or chose to say and do to be successful. The fallout from that success, however, was evident in my own self and my own self-life. And so at the end of that experience, I knew I had to change. And for me, that change meant I wanted to embrace the truth, whatever the truth might be, and come from a place of living the truth, no matter what that looked like. So for the next five years, I spent uh, sort of on the, like the seven years in Tibet journey of studying different religions, different belief systems, uh, different mysticism pathways, all of these ways to find enlightenment and the truth. And after that five-year cycle, what I found was the truth brought me, brought me back to Jesus Christ. And so making that trip from uh, being a cognizant Christian, but a non-practicing Christian, and testing these other belief systems, I found truth back in the person of Jesus Christ. So it brought me back to Christianity, and now I was at step one. Well, at that point, I decided, okay, this is what I need to be focused on. This is what truth looks like for me in my life. And so I thought, like many new Christians, well, this should be easy, right? 
I give it over to God. God responds, and my life completely changes. Well, like many Christians, mm. I found that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I was ready to embrace God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I had no idea what that looked like. And so <clears throat> my struggle then became, what does this relationship, this spiritual relationship with the Father through the Son look like in actualization in my daily life? So for the next seven years, I sort of struggled with, with this, you know, what does it look like? So how do I respond to the people and the events in my life? You know, how do I respond as a Christian if I really don't know what Christianity is and looks like in my life? And so I went through those seven years, you know, in my daily life, trying to bring God into my decisions. But because I was coming out of the world, I still embraced many of the things and the ways of the world. And there, the dichotomy caused the conflict. And I find this for a lot of new Christians, right? They give themselves over to belief and faith and, and a new life in Christ. And yet, a lot of things don't change. And sometimes the struggles even become greater. You know, the devil knows how the story ends. And every time a soul chooses to follow Jesus, the devil often doubles his efforts to pull us off of that path, right? Uh, he wants as many worshipers as he can have when the story ends. And for that reason, you know, as new Christians, we often find that um, we're ready to, to make the change but things all of a sudden even get harder for us, right? The struggle becomes greater. And that's why we have so many fallen back or fallen away Christians, because we expect instantaneous change in our life. And that's not how the Lord works. You know, when, when we get into a situation, a lot of times then we, we give ourselves over to the Lord and then we fall away or fall back. <clears throat> the Lord is always welcoming us with open arms to come to him. But each time he wants to know if this time we're going to stay the course, regardless of the difficulties that we may face. Yeah. So that's what I experienced for that seven years, you know, was yeah. two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two yeah. steps back. So trying to see the Lord working in my life. And yet when I didn't see it immediately, I sort of gave up and thought, okay, well, this is not, working. So this may not be for me. At the end of the seven years, yeah. I had an epiphany of, uh, I had always tried to read the Bible, right? I always tried to get into scripture and it just didn't make any sense. It just was not working. I didn't understand the places or the names. You know, the Old Testament was very difficult. The New Testament was just as confusing. And every time I would try to get into the Bible and get into Scripture, I wouldn't stay. I had no staying power. And after the seven years of struggle, <clears throat> one day I was, you know, in that dichotomy of the worldly me versus the spiritual me. And I, I was coming from lunch to uh, from a class that I was taking, and I pulled into a strip mall in San Diego, 
and there was one space left in the entire parking lot. And I pulled in and I was directly between a topless bar on the right and a Christian bookstore on the left. And I thought, boy, I'd really like to have a sandwich and a beer and look at naked women. And I sat there and I looked at those two options and I said to myself, I'd really like to have a beer and a sandwich and look at naked women. And I got out of my car. I went into the Christian bookstore. I pulled down a Bible off of the shelf, which I still have to this day. I opened it up and I was at Proverbs 16, 9, which says, In his heart, a man sets his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And from that moment on, I could read and understand scripture. So that was my second epiphany. Wow. Three years later, I was in living in Hawaii and doing a Bible study with a young couple. And I had, when I had the Bible experience, I decided, okay, I need to change my name, right? The Lord is reaching out to me and I need to become a new person. So I had decided I was going to change my name. I knew I wanted my last name to be I-S-O-L-E, which means I serve only Lord Emmanuel. And I thought, I really like the name Joshua. So maybe I'll, I'll change my name to Joshua Isole. And for two years, I didn't act upon that. I, I did nothing. I knew it in the back of my mind, but I took no action to make that commitment. <clears throat> and so Three years later, I was doing this Bible study, and I was opened the Bible, and I was at Zechariah 3.8, and it says, I will raise up Joshua, my branch, and the Lord told me at that moment, that's your new name. You are now Branch Isole. And by accepting that commission, after 10 years of being on the path, trying to find and embrace truth in my life through Jesus Christ, my new Christian life actually started. And, and this is a good lesson for new Christians. You know, God has a different timing than we do. And my Christian walk, although it started Amen. 10 years earlier, actually didn't blossom until 10 years later. And at that point, I knew that I needed to have more information about Christianity. So I decided to go back to school. So at, at 52 years old, I went back to school and got a master's in theology as an outgrowth of my desire to know more about my walk with God. Out of that combination of my studies and that desire to know more, came my first book. And now 25 years later and 22 books later, you know, I, I'm walking that path in service to God through Christ. Wow. Some great stories. Amazing story. There's a question that I have to ask in there that I think my audience would appreciate. If I, I think it will be a shame if I don't ask it. What was the distinction that you found or the standalone belief that Jesus was the answer when you went on that search throughout those different religious ideologies 
what would you say is the big difference out of all of them? Great question. Great question. And this is the essential question for Christians. You know, why become a Christian, right? As opposed to a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu or Shinto or what, whatever other religion. What I found in my walk in my studies was <clears throat> at the core of every religion and every spiritual belief system is a fundamental teaching. And that fundamental teaching or tenant is love God first and most and treat your neighbor as yourself. You know, all the scriptures of and all the Vedas and all of the scriptural writings of every spiritual belief system have at their core a love for God and then a relationship with your neighbor. And that's what I discovered. And when I rediscovered Christ in Matthew 22:37, when he is asked by the, the disciples, you know, what's the greatest commandment? <clears throat> and he says, love God first and most, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the words of all of the prophets and all of the laws. And so at that point, you know, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. The reinforcement of that was the fact that all of the master leaders and master founders of religions throughout history, none of those masters, not Buddha, not Muhammad, uh, you know, not Krishna, none of them ever claimed to be the son of God. Only Jesus Christ in scripture, we are told, is the son of God in three different ways. He tells us that he is the way. His disciples recognized and recorded and tell us he is the son of God. And God himself in John speaks to the world at Jesus' baptism and tells us that he is his son. Jesus is God's son. No other master, no other religious leader could ever make that statement because it's not true of them. And being, you know, intellectual masters and religious founders or spiritual belief founders, they all desire to know and share the truth. And the truth is they are not and were not and never did admit to being the son of God. Only Jesus gives us that information. And that's the difference between Christianity and all of the other religions or belief systems. They are all grounded in the premise of loving God and treating your neighbor the way you want to be treated, right? But beyond that point, they all start to diverge in what that relationship with God actually looks like and is portended to be. Only Jesus Christ is that link. And that's what makes Christianity different from other religions. Because interesting enough, I went on a similar journey as well. I, I Even though I was raised Christian, the big fundamental difference that I found in my journey was the verse John 14, 6. And I noticed how different it is in all the other different belief systems. Because in studying philosophy and studying history, the history of religion, when Jesus made the proclamation, he said, he said, 
He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's a powerful declaration. That declaration is so powerful that what it does is it calls out every other belief system and it challenges that status quo. And I think the big difference when I found also all those other belief systems hinged on this desire to be good people. But they found it in the resource of works where Christianity reserts it back and says that, no, Jesus is the only superhero in the story. There are no alternatives, right? There's a superhero here, here, here. No, the big distinction is also that good deeds, you don't get into heaven based upon what you do. You get into heaven based upon who you know. And all those other belief systems are preaching this idea of goodness based upon works, where we know that the only restoration that happens that Jesus corrects that they don't address is the sin issue and then the repairing and the giving of the new heart in Ezekiel 36, 26, that gives you a responsive heart to be responsive towards other people. And you made a great point about, you know, the love element. A lot of people think that self-love is what it is that we should be chasing after. But purposely, the two most important commandments that you mentioned speak more to loving God first and that was a question I had for myself. I said, well, how do I experience God's love? And I had to come to the realization that purposely loving God first, loving your neighbor as yourself, doesn't speak to the embracement of loving yourself. However, if we love one another, God's love is made perfect through the way that we treat one another. And that's how we experience God's love. The interaction of loving others is God loving through you so that they can get that experience. So I think that's like the big struggle, but that transfers me over to the next question in terms of a, a relationship aspect. What do you think is, is the most important detrimental thing that comes to why we have failed relationships between parents and also between a man and a woman? What do you think is the most important missing element in those things? Well, let's first of all address why that's so. You know, we, we come into this world mm -hmm. and we are raised and socialized, especially today with technology so available, to believe that, you know, our life is all about us. It's all about our gratification Amen. and our fulfillments of what we want, and again, particularly in this day and age, regardless of the harm that that might cause others, and regardless of the consequences that that kind of self-love and self-identity behavior can lead to. So that's the problem. Because that's the fundamental way of the world, when we embrace the world and its ways, it automatically keeps us from having a spiritual relationship with God. Whether that's through a prophet like Muhammad or whether it's through the Son of Jesus, a uh, Son of God, Jesus Christ, right? That identity, that conduit mm -hmm. of our spiritualness is taken out of the equation. We know who the prince of this world is. And therefore, when we embrace the world 
and we embrace its ways, we are embracing the ways of the prince of this world. And again, his whole job is to keep us separate from God, separated from God. And therefore, you know, as we go through life, because we want to believe it's all about us and all about the things that we want, and that, you know, if you think back to the, the past empires of the Egyptians and the Romans and the Assyrians, nothing has changed except technology, right? We are, we are acclimated and socialized into this it's all about me world, right? And the longer and the deeper we go on that path, the more separated we become from our spiritual grounding through Christ for the Christian to God the Father. And so <clears throat> what happens is we live in a world of have and have nots and successes and failures. You know, we have a, a, a limited number of people who are well off and the rest of the world is struggling, right? And something you said earlier, for those of us who are struggling, we have a cognition of religion and we turn to that religion, whatever it might be, in order to give us that strength that we are lacking. But what we find is those religions are made up of men who are in it for power and greed and control. They are as secular as the secular world. They're just using religion and this false narrative about God in order to control those people who are suffering. Uh, why does this happen? When Jesus dies, when uh, Muhammad dies, when Buddha dies, it leaves a vacuum, right? And that vacuum has to be filled by those followers who are around that person the most. The problem is the followers are not the pure heart of the master, and they have not had that spiritual relationship with God as the master. So the void is filled by men of manipulating purpose to make the power of the religion or the belief system work for them. And so 2,000 years later, 4,000 years later, you have religions that have evolved and been manipulated away from love God first and most and treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated into they are the vehicle that you have to go through to get to God, right? And there's a payment and a penance to be given to them as that conduit, as that intermediary. And because men are men and men of God have often forsaken that responsibility for the power and the control and the greed of the position, we have religions that have drawn people away from God and away from the fundamentals of a relationship with God in order to further their own purposes. And what happens is, you said something interesting, Jonathan, you know, what's, what's the dichotomy? Well, here's the problem. When we come into this world, you know, if God is the creator and we're told God is spirit in John 4, 24, 
if he's spirit and he is the creator, then as the creator, we are also spirit, right? We are a living spirit created by him, which is housed in a electrical unit that I label the soul that is part of who I am when I'm born, mind, body, soul, and spirit, right? And because my spirit is from God as the creator, I innately have within me the knowledge and conception of right and wrong. When we are born and when we start to, you know, become part of our family and our social unit, about age two, we discover what the meaning of no is, right? And in most cases, no yeah. relates and responds to punishment. So if I'm growing up and I'm thinking, well, whatever I do is either right or wrong, and right means reward, and wrong means punishment, <clears throat> And this is why our entire legal system is built on this concept and reinforces it to us every day in our life. You know, you end up on the wrong side of the law. You end up in jail. You end up in prison. You are being punished for your actions because they were not the right actions. Well, if this is what we know and this is what we embrace and this is what we accept, and we continue to believe that my life is all about me and I'm the one that's in control of my life. And therefore I can do whatever I want to do and roll the dice to see whatever the consequence is. Then I go into every action or decision first thinking, well, is this, is my response going to be right or wrong? Is it going to be a reward for me or is it going to be a punishment for me? And that sort of determines on the scale, how willing I am to risk the outcome being to my benefit or to my detriment. Well, this is what happens when we don't have a relationship with Christ and we're not connected to God the Spirit. We continue to go through our daily lives believing, A, it's all about me. B, I can do whatever I want to get whatever I want because I see a whole world that's operating that way without consequence except for those of us who can't afford, you know, good lawyers or have the ways and means to get out of the consequence. That's a whole nother story. But I, I'm living my life rolling the dice with every decision and choice I make <clears throat> as a reward versus a punishment. Because I only focus on, is this right or wrong for me? Th what I experience is, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, and sometimes it's downright ugly, the consequence. And the longer I'm in that cycle, yeah. the more likely it is that the negatives are going to start to overtake my life. When we get a relationship with Christ reignited, right, <clears throat> how do we do that? We simply invite Christ into our lives. There's no other requirement, right? He tells us in Matthew 7. Ask, seek, knock. You know, you will find me when you come to look for me. As soon as we do that, he responds by telling us yeah. in John 16, 13, I will send my spirit of truth, my counselor, my advocate, John 14, 16, and 26. I will spend the spirit of truth to be with you, to live with your spirit. 
when that happens, his Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that is God the Father, comes to dwell within us with our spirit living in our soul. What happens then is we now have the spirit of truth dwelling within us. So immediately the veil is pulled back. Our eyes are open to the truth in our world. We now see the truth. And in seeing the truth, we automatically see the lies and the falsehoods and the fabrications. Here's the challenge for the new Christian. Am I going to now choose the path of truth or am I going to ignore what I'm seeing as truth and go back to my old life, embracing the ways of the world, embracing the lies and the fabrications? When you get the spirit of truth reactivating your spirit within you and you now have the truth living within you and you choose to follow that truth to embrace the Holy Spirit within you, what you now find is in every choice and in every decision, it's no longer about what's in it for me. It's now about what is the moral and or ethical choice? Am I going to choose the reward and punishment choice or am I going to choose the moral and ethical choice? And if I choose to be moral and ethical in my responses to the events and the people in my life, then the truth is living within me. And now all of a sudden, the outcome, the consequence, or the fallout of a moral and an ethical choice benefits not only me, it benefits my family, it benefits my community, it benefits my neighborhood, it benefits my nation, and it benefits my world. Because the character and nature of God is truth and love, that truth and love is actionable in life through morals and ethics. When I have the spirit of Christ living within me again and active within me, I now see the moral and ethical opportunity in my response. And if I choose to respond morally and ethically, then I am responding the way Christ would respond in the same situation. And if I am responding Christ-like, then I truly am a Christian. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I agree with everything that you said. To kind of piggyback on some of the things you said, you know, I believe it's second John chapter 15, verse 16, it tells us, right? It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, as you stated, the love for the Father is not in you. Right? For everything in the world, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The pride of life does not come from the Father, but it comes from the world, right? So then we understand that the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will for God lives forever. And in reference to what you were stating, at least from a historical aspect, we look no further than the 1800s, the Catholic Church, right? There was a reason fundamentally why Martin Luther came about because of what the church was doing traditionally in terms of bribing and telling people that money was necessity for access into heaven. So when we have those disparities and those confusing ideologies that were pressed and told to the people, we have this chaotic, you know, observance. And then we have this misconception about 
what the church is meant to do, right? And I remember doing, you know, philosophy and study of religion. One of the catalysts for this was John Locke, the promotion in this idea that being financially stable gave you entitlement to the gospel message. But we understand that the gospel message is not limited to a few, but it's told to all. And one of the things John Locke spoke about is that only those who were preview to the gospel message were those who were in financial great standing, as opposed to those who were poor and didn't know anything. They didn't understand that the image of God, the Imago Dei, was written on every human being that ever exists that God created. But instead, they were told otherwise, and therefore, they never embraced who they truly were, and they never understood who they truly were. So there's always been misconceptions in the beliefs that some of the ideologies that the church have implemented have misled people. And that's why till today, people don't trust the church. In fact, there are a lot of things going on. And as you stated, this has been going on for a long time. We, we understand that there are people within the church that give the, the, the context of the church a bad name and not knowing any, you know, the Bible and what not people are misled and then therefore they're missing out on the truth and unfortunately you know we got to kind of shake that and, and try to encourage and motivate people to find out the truth on their own individually versus what they hear right blessed the one who hears my words and does what it says and it, it's really you know or, or we can go to romans where he says you know blesses the one who hears and he he truly is the one that gets saved because he hears the message, right? But people that are blocked out and don't get access to that are are usually those that walk away, not truly understanding or or knowing that the access that they can have through Christ. But it's it's the limited exposure that can pretty much corrupt and destroy. So, and you made a great point about why relationships aren't working. Because it's, it's like you said, it's all founded and based on the misconception that it's about you. And if you think it's about you, then that means you'll never truly embrace and understand that it's about being selfless, not selfish, right, ultimately. So then that leads me to ask you this question. What do you believe is the reason why we're here? The purpose of life? That is that your question? Why are we here? Well, in all the studying I've done, I've come to a simple conclusion that I believe the reason we're here, the reason for life is to, one, know that God exists, and then to know God's ways, to know God's character, to know God's nature through Jesus Christ. I can't find any other reasons or purpose for life other than acknowledging that God exists is and that he has provided a way for us to know him better and to be reconciled to him after our mortal death mm-hmm. yeah that's great because yeah I, my answer is, is very similar but probably a little bit more in depth i've always felt the reason why we're here is to let god's love light and truth shine through us. And, and the reason why I, I, I preference those things 
is because I think for one, the struggle for love is is evident, right? People want to be loved. People want to understand what that is. And as I expressed to you earlier, you know, people don't know what God's love is. They've never seen God, right? But if we love one another, then God's love that is perfect in us can then be expressed to those who have no idea what that experience is like. The other thing is, I love the passage is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. And we just did a cover on that on Sunday. It talks about us being light and salt in a world, right? And I've always said, we're, as believers, we aren't the main course, but we're the alternative to society. So as salt, we provide godly wisdom, godly discernment, godly judgment. That's prudence. That's who we are. The world itself needs that alternative, which is why it says, you know, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do it generously and respectfully. Make sure in Colossians, all speech is seasoned with salt. There goes that word again, salt. When he talks about light, again, in Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. So, really, in this world, we're, as, as alternatives, I think it's evident the reason why Jesus says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that you protect them in it, is that I believe wholeheartedly in order for God to bring us all back to himself through Jesus Christ, people need to be need to see the error of their ways and us being in the world as light. I think they start to gravitate eventually to what the truth is. And because Paul mentioned in second Corinthians chapter five, where he says that we are ambassadors and representatives of Christ, and he's making his ammunition through us. We're here to provide that. And the more we're here, as believers, the more people by our actions can be, you know, he says, live, you know, live a quiet life so that you can win the respect of outsiders through the consistent watch of us to see how we operate, the way we discuss things, the way we communicate is the reason why we're needed in a society that's broken and wounded, that's searching for truth. And I think God evidently has left us here in order for us to be the premier, the prevalent example of that. And I think us as believers play a pivotal role in that. And that's why I believe one of the reasons we're here is to express God's love through the way he's loved us and the relationship that we have to make them envious, like in the Old Testament, right? Why is your God so close to those people? I believe that it's shifted from a church structure is more on the individual aspect and people are can be envious and strive to want to know what that is and then ultimately god pulls them in so that like you said we're all given a choice eventually so it's through that choice people have that ability to decide whether or not they have a willingness to embrace it or they have a willingness to reject it so i believe that's what our purpose is here on earth to do couldn't agree more. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so here's a question that I have now. So now, since you've been walking with Christ for a long time, are there any passages in Scripture that you've read 
that have brought upon on you know you, i've always said you can read a text once and believe you've got the understanding of it but through reading it more and more and your experience over years it changes it alters are there any texts off the top of your head that you know of or you think of that through your experience it has changed and has brought about new revelation to you that you're excited about and that you rejoice and thank god for. oh sure you know that you, what you just said is really interesting because one of the the magnificent things about bible scripture is that the deeper you get into it mm -hmm. the more you see and the more you understand and it, it's it's like digging a hole you know and the deeper you dig all of a sudden the sides start to fall away and, and the broader it gets and the deeper your understanding about what's being said applies to you, you know, as the individual. Um, I've got a whole handful of scriptures that, you know, have made a difference in my life, but have taught me so much about a relationship with Christ. And I'll give you three. The first is John 847. And, and it basically is, um, why do you know? Why does God not hear me? And it says, the reason God doesn't hear you is because you don't belong to God. You know, those who belong to God mm. hear God's voice. And so, if you want to have that relationship and have that conversation with God, then you need to believe that God is who He is. And who the scriptures say he is you know uh if you belong to god you will hear god's voice one way or the other the second one that i love is john 15 22 and it simply says you know this is christ talking he says if i had not come then they would have no excuse because in their ignorance of not knowing the gospel, you know, they they just don't know. They don't know, so they embrace the world's ways, and they are ignorant of anything other than the world's ways. But now that I have come, and they have heard the gospel, they no longer have an excuse. And when I think about this and something you were saying earlier, you know, about the church, <clears throat> particularly the Catholic church, but also about the 20th and 21st century purpose-driven church of the carnal Christian, you know, the one who, who gives God the glory, but strives and works and, and lusts for the power and the money of the world, right? Uh, give me these riches, Lord, and, and I'll give you the praise. And so that's sort of the, the secular version of the Catholic church is, you know, I'm in it for you, God, but only if and when I get my treasure. So those are the people, you know, those are the Christians that I think about who are missing the mark. You know, they've heard the gospel and now they have no excuse for embracing and continuing on the world's path. And yet they do. And the third one talks about Lazarus's death um, when when Jesus raises Lazarus in John eleven twenty five, 25 and it says if you believe 
in me, even though you die, you will live. But those who live believing in me will never die. And people say, well, is that the same? Isn't that the same thing? Well, no, it's not. What he's saying is, if you live now, like my parents did, right? And they believe in Christ, then they will live again. They will be resurrected to new life. But for those of us who live believing and emulating Christ in our lives, we will never even experience that death. We won't have to, you know, lie in the ground as dust or ash waiting for the rapture or resi, resi, um, resi pardon me, resurrection. Thank you. Jeepers, creepers. Uh, Resurrection. You know, if we live embracing and emulating Christ as part of our daily lives, we will not even experience death. As spirits, we will go through his refining, purifying fire of spirit and be with him immediately. And so those are three scriptures that, you know, have a lot of power, not only for the individual, but for the individual trying to understand, you know, what is my place in this place and my place with the Lord. Amen. Amen. Couldn't agree. I, I like those those three reflective responses towards, you know, figuring out, you know, or growing and maturing in your faith and, and coming to the realization of the importance of those verses. So what would you say is, is the key to reducing stress, struggle, and conflict? Well, we already touched on it, right? Um, in, in our daily life, it's full of stress and pressure and struggle and conflict. That's the way of the world. Um, we don't realize it, but that's the way of the world, is to make us suffer in order to have a choice of how, how am I going to reduce the suffering, right? And again, because we don't have a relationship with God through Christ, all we see is the struggle of the world. And okay, if I'm in a struggle, how do I get out of that struggle? How do I conquer that struggle? And that's a no-win situation. You can't win because the design of the world is to give you that choice of embracing the world or embracing something outside of the world. The answer is, if you want to reduce the struggle and stress and pressure in your daily life, then you have to start responding to the people and the events in your life coming from the highest loving self you are by embracing the truth and responding morally and ethically. When you respond from a moral and ethical stance, then you are emulating Christ-like behavior because, again, the morals and ethics are the actions of truth and love. That's all. If you want to become a better person in your life, become a more moral and ethical person. It's simple to see. Look at the news any day on any channel. And whatever they're talking about, there's a choice there of do the people in this situation that I'm viewing respond about right and wrong, reward and punishment, you know, what's in it for them? Or do they respond morally and ethically? Do they respond truthfully? the way Christ would respond. And there's your answer. 
the more you respond Christ-like, coming from truth and love and treating others the way you want to be treated, the more positive response you're going to get, the more positive energy you're going to get in your life, the more love you're going to get in your life. And you're going to start understanding that negative, that degradating energy in people and things, you don't have to have them in your life. You don't have to be part of them or part of their situation. You simply respond morally and ethically. And I'll guarantee you that energy, those people will go somewhere else because they don't want to face the truth. That's the problem in the world today. People don't want to face or embrace the truth. They have too many ways to rationalize or too many ways to blame or too many ways to make excuses why they can't make a choice to believe in God through Christ and then behave like Christ, behave like a true Christian. Mm. And it's simple, respond morally and ethically, mm -hmm. and you'll be responding the way Christ would respond. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you will start to see and continue to see blessings, small and large, in your life. And first you're going to say, gee, I was lucky I didn't have that accident just now. And then you're going to realize that because you have the light of Christ living within you, you recognize the moral and ethical response. And therefore, every time you respond that way, God smiles. And when God smiles, he's a loving parent who is proud of your choice to be an obedient child. And therefore, obedience gets blessings, big blessings, small blessings. But you start to understand and realize the things that are happening in your life are the blessings of the love of a loving parent. And that's what God is, a loving parent. Okay, so I want to ask you this. Why do you think people struggle with embracing Jesus Christ? Because they don't want to. Why do you think they struggle with embracing Jesus? They don't want to embrace Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We have a choice, right? And here's the thing. All of us who now embrace Jesus Christ at one point in our life did not. We, were, we weren't born special. We weren't born embracing Jesus Christ. We didn't know Jesus Christ. Everyone comes into this world as a part and product of the world. And therefore, our natural and comfortable experience is to embrace the world. Jesus Christ is an alternative to the world. And that's a choice we have to make. See, you know, <clears throat> the love of God is so great, Jonathan. He never requires anything of us throughout our life. He never coerces us. He never tries to convince us. He never tries to convert us into believing in him or believing in his son. He never puts any pressure on us. The world puts the pressure on us. The world puts the struggle and the stress on us. God doesn't. God is not a punisher. He's not up there trying to make our lives miserable. We do that ourselves by our choice to embrace and be part of the world. That's a choice. We each have a choice to acknowledge and embrace God through Christ at some point in our lives, many of us at many points in our lives. The love of God is so great that if you make that choice with your last dying breath, 
he will embrace you and accept you into his eternity with him. But if you go and take that last breath and refuse him, he's told us in scripture, you know, that he's drawn a line and he's given us all this time and all these opportunities to acknowledge who he is, to come to know him better, to come to embrace obedience to his word and why we should do that blessings or not. And if we choose not to, that's free will. That's what free will is all about. He gives us free will to make that choice. And ultimately, it's a choice that we have to decide to make. The problem is many people around the world and many other religions don't understand that choice because they don't know Jesus Christ. And the Christians who claim to know Christ and claim to understand that refuse to actually live it. It's a choice. And, and you know, we all have that choice to make at some point. Some of us choose at, you know, 10 years old. Some of us takes longer. Some of us don't do it to our last breath. My, the reason to do it is the sooner you do it, the more years of blessings you'll have. It's that simple. But you can refuse to, you know, you can kick and scream all the way there. But if your choice is to believe in the possibility of eternal life or not, you're a fool not to take that option. But, you know, we have people who are hard-headed out there and they think it's all about them. And, you know, the, the devil woos us and tempts us and challenges and tests us in many ways. It comes down to a choice. It's like every other choice in your life. And the fact is, people just don't want to choose to believe. They'll believe that the devil exists, but they won't believe that Christ is the Son of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, heard, I heard it was said, it, it takes more resistance, more resistance to deny Christ than to embrace Him. Yeah, exactly. It's all right. So, so it was interesting. I won't... It's all about resist. You're right. It's all about resistance. It's all about resistance. It, it's a choice. I can choose to believe or not, and God gives me that free will to, to make that choice. Uh, he doesn't. You know, he he doesn't want. It has to be our voluntary choice. Otherwise, what's the point? If he's forcing us to believe in him, then what's the point? You know, God doesn't need us in order to exist. He has existed forever. So he never needed us to recognize him. What he's done is he's given us a choice to understand that he exists. And in that existence, then he wants to bring us back to him so that he can, you know, enjoy that acknowledgement that we understand that he's God. And restore us exactly. Well said. Well said. It's interesting enough. A couple of days ago, I, I, I was on a show. I was on an atheist show, and and they asked me this question, and I think they felt that I couldn't answer the question, and the question was, why does God show favoritism? And I said, I said to them, you, you're familiar with John three sixteen, right? And they said they, they're familiar with it. And I said, well, I want to give you a different point of view of John 3.16. And I want you to understand what it is that you're doing to yourself. 
that's causing yourself a problem. And he said, okay, so we know in John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I said, the problem is you're choosing not to believe in him. So when God talks about favoritism, favoritism exists to those that believe. When you don't believe, you remove yourself from that favoritism. I said, you, you have to look at it in two ways, right? I told him, Proverbs 3.34 said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. I also explained to them that in Matthew and also in James, God says that he causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he causes the rain to fall on, on the unrighteous and the righteous. And I said, if you think about that, look at a scale from zero to two. Right. And I said, whether or not you believe it or not, there are a lot of people in this world that are still receiving favor from God, even though they don't believe. Because God is still causing good things to happen and reassurance in their life. I said, you also got to view it in this way, that the reason why grace increases as sin increases is that you may come to understand that repentance is the way to go. So when sin increases, grace increases all the more to ensure or to show you that it's possible, right? So then I, I ended with this statement, and I, and I said to them that the scale from zero to two is obvious. I said, I said the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verse 28 makes it clear. But I first told them the context. Jesus was having a conversation with a woman, and she said, blesses the woman that births you. And Jesus' response is, blessed not rather is who birthed me, but the one who hears my words and does what it says. And I said, there's a, there's a beautiful translation in the Amplified Version that says, blessed and highly favored is the one who hears my words and continuously observes it. So if you want your relationship with God to develop and grow, the more you build in that relationship, the more favor you have. The more you drift from that relationship, the more favor you lose. And I'm nothing to say after that because I want them to see that as you stay, as you stated, it's a choice of the matter. If you're choosing not to embrace these things, you're choosing to go a different route, then you're understanding that you're bringing upon chaos and problems onto yourself. And, and don't get it twisted, as believers, you still will face it, but at least you have the comfort and the security of your salvation along with the tools necessary for you to be an overcomer in those suffering stages knowing as romans chapter 5 3 through 5 says when it talks about you know how suffering can bring about hope can bring about the development that's necessary for you to grow right that's what those suffering stages are through christ is developing your character and building your reason more to trust god in those periods and times and rather less to think that God is punishing you, but rather bringing you to another level that helps evolve your faith in God even more. So I guess this lines up with the next question. How does one acquire the use of spiritual strength? Great question. Let me go back to something you just said, because if you're a parent and you have children, then you love your children. Even when they're 
rambunctious or disobedient, right? You still love your children. As a parent, your role is to correct them and or discipline them so that they understand, you know, the outcome of their disobedience. If you're a parent, you love your children. You also may care for or appreciate, you know, the other children at the playground where your children are playing, right? You don't have any reason to dislike someone else's children, but you always love your own children. And your responsibility is to, you know, ground them so that they become good people as adults. And sometimes that takes correction and sometimes it takes discipline, but there's a purpose and a reason. The same is true with God. God loves his children. He cares about all of the other children that are not his, but he loves his children. And as a result of that love, you know, when we are disobedient, his choice is to allow us to be corrected or disciplined. When we are obedient, his natural instinct and way is to bless us and reward us somehow. So it's the same thing. He loves his children. He cares about the other children, but because they have chosen not to be his children at that moment, he can't love them in the same way. He can't provide for them in the same way because they don't recognize him as that loving father, as that parent. Same thing is true with us. We care about other people's kids, but we love our own. And our responsibility is to our own children that they would become, you know, good, productive adults who know the word, know the truth, and know love. Amen. Amen. So now your question. Yeah, so you were going to attack the question. How? No, you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well said. I, I appreciate that. You said, how does one... So I, the question is, how does one acquire and use spiritual strength? I'm interested yeah. to hear this one. Simple. Five simple that. steps. This is what's so great about God's love is he doesn't make it complicated and he doesn't make it confusing and he doesn't make it difficult to do. If you want a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you want to reactivate the spirit that's already in you so that your life will change, you do five things. Number one, you ask Christ to come into your life. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. When you do that, he will send his spirit, the spirit of the living God, the Father, his Holy Spirit, he will send into your life. He tells us that in John 6, uh, 16, 13. He bolsters that by telling us, once you have his spirit within you, you have the power and the right and the privilege to call upon and use his spiritual strength in your life. John 14, 16, and 26, right? I will send the spirit of truth to dwell with you. That spirit is your advocate, your counselor, your instructor, your teacher. Everything you need in the spiritual strength of Christ is within the Holy Spirit, who now will dwell within your spirit in your soul. 
once you've got that spirit active in your life, every situation, every choice that you're in where you have to make a decision and you don't know which you want to do. Do I want to do like the old me would do or do I want to do what the new me would do? It's real simple. John 14, 6, as Jonathan said earlier, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. A lot of people say, well, he's the way, right, to eternal life. That's right. But he's also the way for you to respond here today in this life. Respond Christ-like, right? So every situation I'm in, I say, what would Jesus do, Charles Shelton? What would Jesus do if he were in this situation? And when I ask that question, his living spirit within me will show me what my options are. And how does he do that? He shows me if I choose to do, you know, the me thing, the all about me thing, the world way thing, the consequences he shows me are the negatives, right? Now, that doesn't mean I have to choose to, to follow the Lord. I can still choose to walk and embrace the world's way, but he's going to show me what the consequences are. Let me give an example. I go to a party, right? And I get inebriated. It's time to go home. I've got three choices. I can drive home, which maybe I've done before successfully under the influence and gotten home okay, or I can catch a ride with somebody, or I can hire Uber or Lyft or taxi, right? Those are my choices. Well, because I've driven home successfully before under the influence, I think, okay, I can do this. And if I don't have the spirit of Christ in me, that's my natural instinct. Oh, I did it before I got home. I can get home again, right? Well, three things can happen. I can get home okay, or I can get stopped and arrested and face the consequences of a DUI, or I can possibly get into an accident that harms or kills myself or others. Well, because I've done this before, my natural me instinct is, okay, I can drive home and, and I've done it before. When I have got Christ in my life and I say, what would Jesus do? His Holy Spirit immediately shows me those three options, but reinforces to me that the negative ones, the, the two that can cause me death and destruction or very costly to me can also happen, right? So I choose to catch a ride or hire a lift. <clears throat> and that's 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 where God's spirit in me is working. It's it's reminding me you've got a choice to make here. These are your options which you're going to choose. Mm -hmm. And you can keep choosing to drive under the influence, but I guarantee you at some point one of those other two things are going to happen. It's just, you know, roll of the dice, the odds begin to go against you. And having an accident, harming somebody, killing somebody, or even being arrested for DUI is costly. It costs you time, it costs you money, and it can ruin your life. And it was a simple choice that you could make. And if Christ's spirit is within you, every time you ask, what would Jesus do? His spirit's going to guide you. It's going to instruct you. It's going to help you make the better decision for you. And that's the whole point. <clears throat> so, the fourth step uh, is in, to embrace and emulate Christ as the way, not only the way to eternal life, but the way to living today. The fifth one is about your salvations, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, right? Um, 
you've got to believe and have faith that Christ is who he is. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, then you're guaranteed eternal life. The benefit of these five steps is you can change your life simply by doing these five things. And what it does is it brings Christ into your life now and hereafter. That's the way to live your life. With Jesus active in your life every day now, but guaranteed to be ever after too. So you do those five steps, those scripturally sound five steps. Embrace and invite Christ. Use his Holy Spirit. Emulate his behavior. What would Christ do in this situation? Then you're responding Christ-like. Then you truly are the Christian that you claim to be and believe that Jesus is who he said he was, who the disciples declared and wrote that he was, who God the Father himself said and uh, emulated with the dove landing on his shoulder at the River Jordan. So it would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. In regards of your praise and worship uh, experience, are there any songs that you loved and you endured, you, 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 that, that are dear to your heart that you don't mind sharing? Well, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I, liked, I like to go to the Psalms, right? And the, the songs of David. Um, <clears throat> because although you're not singing them, you are understanding that they were sung. That was worship. But every one of those psalms has such great meaning. You know, church songs are uplifting and, and can be, uh, Marantha songs are have a great beat and, and talk about truth and stuff. But if you want to get the song just for yourself, you know, go to the book of psalms. And every one of those was a worship song, you know, um, so many of David's were worship songs when he was a shepherd, also when he was king. But the, the in a couple of sentences, uh, you can hum any hum you want to hum with it, but in a couple of sentences, you get the word of God speaking to your heart. You know, that's what the word of God is all about. There's nothing of this world that can fulfill your heart and fill the void in your heart like a relationship with Christ. Why? Because the relationship is the blessing. When you're on that path and you understand that, all of the other blessings that might come about in your life, be they material or emotional or psychological or getting you out of a situation that you know would have been costly, those are all blessings. But the true blessing of a relationship with Christ is the relationship. There's nothing that will fill your heart, nothing of this world that can fill your heart like that relationship. And only when you have that relationship will you know that feeling. But when you know that feeling, you'll know that there's nothing of this world that can supersede your relationship with God now through Jesus Christ. That is the blessing. Good stuff. Good stuff. There's a there's a passage that I wanted to to uh, reference. 
And I remember having this conversation with someone, and I asked you this, but, and I'll see if you agree. I'm pretty sure you'll agree with it. When a person asks you, how are you so sure that all this is true? Normally, what is it that you say to that person? If they're, they're having doubts, they're having concerns, what would you say to that person who's on the ledge or in between uh, one side of the gate and the other and they want to jump off? What would you say is a, is a promising statement that you think would provide some sort of security and and belief and trust in and, and, and what it is along this path? Great question. Great question. Well, here's what I would say. Um, put the spiritual connotation and the relationship connotation to the side for a moment and go into the Bible, but go into the historic part of the Bible, right? Go into the history of Jesus, go into the archaeology of Jerusalem and David Go into the um, archaeological digs that are scientifically available and scientifically proven with actual physical evidence. Take some time and look at the history and the archaeology of Israel, Jerusalem, uh, David and Solomon, the big names in the Bible. And what you will find is actual evidence that proves the scriptures, right? So go to the worldly things first and prove to yourself that the things that history has shown and is written about and can be verified by archeology span and the things of archeology span prove that these things took place in human history. If you can then believe that the history and the archaeology proves to you that these events happened and these people actually lived and the things that they have written about actually happened. Now you're ready to launch into a deeper understanding of what those things, what those people, what those events can actually mean to you on the psychological, the emotional, and the spiritual level that would allow you to ten, begin that spiritual grounding and that spiritual relationship. If you don't want to believe, then don't believe. But if you want to believe and can't believe, then go to the things that are available for you to see and touch and understand, the physical things that prove out the truth of the Bible and Bible scripture. Then you'll be prepared to go the next step and actually have that spiritual relationship because spiritual relationship is all about faith. It's about believing the unseen, right? We're told in Hebrews, uh, that's what faith is, is, is believing that which is not seen. So if you can't go there now, go to the things that are seen, that can be seen, that have been seen and are available for you to see and then make the leap. At least then you'll have the power of the evidence to start to understand the truth of scripture and how important that relationship is mm. that you can develop and begin yourself. You don't need anybody's approval. You don't need anybody's help. You don't need anybody's guidance. It's all there if you want to go on your own. 
if you want help and guidance and assistance, it's available too. Great answer. And and I agree with you. There's an actual series that I, I actually did on the podcast. It was called God Proven versus God Revealed. And and one of the things that I spoke highly about is that to to one who doesn't believe God, the Bible would never be a, a conviction to one. Because the conviction only comes to those who actually believe. So when we read the scriptures, we understand that part of reading God's word is holding us accountable. Therefore, we have a portion in which we feel convicted about these things because we actually believe them. To the person who isn't, a, who isn't convicted by these things and don't believe God, they can read the Bible and not understand it through the lens of the one who actually believes. And one of the things I, I, I spoke about, and I was having a conversation with a gentleman on Saturday about this, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and and what Paul does is he speaks at length to, it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has reserved to those who love him, right? So the, the words that come from the, from the word of God is foolishness to those who don't believe, but we also understand that they're perishing. But to the one who does believe, it's dear to your heart because you know that within the word it saves. So a person that is rejecting all of those notions about God is because they've gotten to a point that they haven't submitted themselves to God. So in order for you to get the, the, the secrets that is only reserved within the spirits, you have to believe, right? So the individual I'm speaking to that will come on and will talk, the person is having a very difficult time at the moment and understanding that because you lack the belief in God, that doesn't then come with the secrets that is revealed and only discerned through the Spirit. So it's never going to make sense to you. And it's because you don't believe who Jesus is. And and in regards to everything that you said in reference to going and searching out, the, the, person, said, the person asked me, well, how do I know that everything that is proclaimed in the scriptures will come true. I said, well, one, when Jesus was on the road to Damascus in Luke 24, he pointed it out to him that he had to open up their eyes through the scriptures to see that the scriptures were written about him, right? So that comes the element of revealing, right? It has to be revealed to you. You can't prove God. He can only reveal himself to you. And if you're trying to prove God, you're going to fail every single time, especially if you're going based upon human arguments, right? And, and we have the persuasive human arguments and philosophy that are cool. But it's this verse here that changed my understanding of it. And it's a simple verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. It says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. So we know that we know that we know that we know that we're going to be just fine because we have the spirit that is a deposit. And you know how it is with a home. When you put a, a deposit on, it's not for you to make the full payment, but it's to ensure that as you make the full payment, as you go through life, you have something down that proves that it's yours. Right. And now you just have to walk it out. Right. And that comes with a lot of different challenges in life. And, you know, Jesus said, be a good cheer for I've overcome the world. But in this life, you will face tribulation. 
right? He, he lets you know about that. So that deposit is that guarantee that you have a piece of something of God that allows you to continue to walk the walk and continue to live the life. And I think when I made that statement tonight, I believe he began to understand that that's the reason why we can speak so profoundly in such depth and such a reassurance and in such boldness is because of the Holy Spirit. So I've saved the last question and, and I'm interested to say, I know a lot of people have questions about the end times, right? I know a lot of people are curious about that. So kind of give, you know, your base, your, 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 your summary or, your explanation for those who are concerned and worried and and, and want to know what that, what that is about. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the books where you, people can find you, those sort of things. Okay, Jonathan, here we go. We are living in the end times, right? Uh, it just, it is. Amen. I, I'm glad yeah. you said uh, <laughs> if, if you... Have heard about the end times, but really don't know anything about it, which is most people, even most Christians. Um, go to Matthew 24. That's the first step. There he, Matt, Jesus himself tells us what to expect, right? The end times are both a promise mm -hmm. for believers and a warning for unbelievers. The end times involve all of us. <clears throat> and you can see the uh, the thing about the end. Here's the thing about prophecy. There are 34,000 verses in the Bible. About 25% of those are prophetic. Of that 25%, 1,817 specific prophecies are about the end times or the last days and Christ's return. Of those 1,817, most have already taken place. The few that haven't taken place are yet to come. But of all of those that have happened, every one of them has come to pass exactly as prophesied. And we're talking about prophecy that's been, you know, over 3,000 years recorded. There's not been one of those that has not come to pass exactly as it was prophesied. So that gives us reason to understand and believe that the rest of them that are about to unfold also are going to come true. So everybody's heard about 666 and the Antichrist. Everybody has heard about Christ's second coming. Everybody's heard the term the rapture, right? And those are, are the big ones that people are kind of familiar with from Hollywood and writings and, and all those things, because those are the ones that catch our attention. Well, there's some others that are going to happen before and in conjunction with those. And so for the new prophecy or last days or end times uh, student or inquirer, the ones that I point out are the ones that the entire world will see unfold. They will be undeniable, unmissable, and unbelievable for both the believer and the unbeliever. But here they are. 
The Ezekiel War is going to come about with the opposition countries. There's going to be a coalition of countries that are going to try and invade Israel, the Golan Heights, the mountain areas of Israel from Syria. And in all of the run-up to that invasion, not one country in the world is going to come to Israel's assistance, right? Israel's going to be facing this invasion alone. When that happens and that invasion starts, God is going to intervene on Israel's behalf and cause the armies that are invading to be decimated and destroyed. That's the first event everyone is going to see. Out of that war, out of the negotiations of that war, is going to come a treaty between Israel and the defeated countries. And the man who brokers that treaty is going to become the Antichrist. So pay attention to the broker of that treaty, to the diplomat who leads the way in structuring that treaty. The next thing that the whole world will see is Elijah and Moses coming to the third temple. The third temple will be rebuilt as a result, I think, of that treaty. That'll be part of the treaty negotiations that the Jewish community will be able to rebuild the temple. It will be the third temple. Moses and Elijah will come and preach on the steps of the temple, and this will be seen by the whole world. That will be the start of the seven years tribulation. At mid-tribulation, Jerusalem and Israel will be invaded by the armies of the Antichrist. Moses and Elijah will be put to death, and three days later will be raised to heaven in front of the whole world. It will all be televised. And I'm a believer of the mid-trib rapture. So if the tribulation midpoint comes and the rapture happens at this point, all of the Christian believers in the world will be gone. Now, the powers of the world will convince the people that are left that this has been, you know, some COVID-type disease or something that's unexplainable, but it happened, and all the Christians will be dead. Our souls will be gone. I believe our bodies will be still here, and we'll just, you know, mortally be dead. But we will be raptured. Our souls will be raptured. The believers will be gone. The whole world will see this. The next thing and final thing the whole world will see is the mark of the beast will be instituted by the Antichrist, and he will take over the temple and install himself as God. If you live that long and you start to see these things unfold, you better get right with God at that moment. If you don't want to see those things or you believe you may die before those things happen, then do the five steps Jonathan and I described and get right with God today. And that way, no matter what happens, you know, you won't need to fear death and your life eternal will be guaranteed by Christ himself. 
but the end times are going to happen. The end times are, are the tribulation period is seven years long. The first half deals with the world. The second half, God is only concerned about reconciliation of the Jews. So if you're still here at mid-trib or when the rapture happens, <clears throat> you're on your own at that point. God is not coming to save you and he's not coming to help you. He's only going to be concerned with the Jewish people and the remnant of Israel uh, that they recognize the Messiah. So, you know, today's the day of salvation, as they like to say. And there's no reason to not start believing and to start building your faith. Amen. Yeah, so before we close, I was just curious, what encouraged you or, or inspired you to become a writer? Because, right, I want people to, you know, have the opportunity to read some of your writings. What was it for you that sprung this desire to want to write and express yourself? And write 22 books. Well, again, in conjunction with that desire at midlife to change my life, to come back to Christ, but more so to know more about Christ and the Christian life, right? Christ-like life. <clears throat> That's why I went back to school. In conjunction with my theological studies then, I was moved and compelled by Lord to write my first book. And it's titled, God, I Believe. And what it is, is a layman's study of the world's great religions. And it's a comparative study. So I had people who used to come to me and say, well, I don't know whether I want to be a Christian or not. I'm, I think I want to be a Buddhist or I think I want to be a Muslim. And they would say, you know, why should I be a Christian? And the more I thought about it, I thought that's a darn good question. You know, why, why should you be a Christian? Um, so in conjunction with those studies, <clears throat> I wrote this book and what it is, it compares the world's great religions using 10 questions and it asks each religion the same question. And then we get that religion or that spiritual beliefs answer to that question. So you can compare all the religions real easily, right? And then, okay, if you decide to be a Buddhist, you know a little more about Buddhism and you can go down that path. But in comparing apples and apples, you find out more about what the purpose and role of Christianity is in the believer's life. And so I'm not trying to convince or convert or coerce anybody into being a Christian. But if you're at that place in your life, and you want to know more about where your life may be going and why, and you've got that tickle in your heart or in the back of your mind about, well, maybe I need to look at a spiritual path and what that might look like for me. This is a good way to compare all of your options and then make the decision that works best for you. So that was my first book. And I wrote it basically for seekers, searchers, and fallen away Christians. That's the intended audience. I thought that would be my last book. I thought I was done. And then one day I was, at the time I was writing that book, I was living in Maui, Hawaii, and I was sitting out on the edge of the cliff. We lived at the very eastern part of the island of Maui, and I could look across the water and see the big island, Hawaii. And I thought, my goodness, what would it be like to be stranded and abandoned at sea. 
And I thought about all of the kinds of thoughts that might go through one's mind about survival and rescue and, you know, no food, no water and predators and all those kinds of things and how frightening that might be and how, you know, at what point would you give up um, or would you give up, you know, and being all alone is a scary place to be anyway you know even in one who's in their own room fighting depression that loneliness is powerful and so isolation and loneliness can play havoc with your mind and i thought what are all the things i would think of if i was you know abandoned at sea and there was no chance of survival and from that came my first short story my first poem and after that, it just started coming out that way. And I wrote 18 books of short stories and poetry um, based on life situations. And so that's what I write about. I write about situations that everyone knows of, either firsthand or through some secondary or tertiary source. But the things that we think about, the things that we face, the situations, the relationships, the successes, the failures, the rejections, all the things about daily living. And I just kept writing. Um, so now, you know, I've got 22 books, 18 of them are fiction. I also have four nonfiction books um, in different areas. But that's it. Uh, I never thought of myself as an author or a writer. It, it just sort of evolved. I had some background in academic and technical writing. So I had the fundamentals of the me mechanics and the skills already down. But the creative part was what came from, you know, those experiences and growth. And um, so I write about readers and what readers experience. My works are not autobiographical. It's not about me. It's about you, the reader, and your experiences, and your walk, and your path, and your growth. And the theme of all of my stuff is the power of truth, and the power of choice and consequence, and what a balanced relationship in life looks like. Okay, so where can people go and purchase and check out some of sure thanks for asking jonathan easy i've got a website it's branchysole.com just my name um you can get my books and ebooks there you can get it amazon anywhere that you get books barnes and noble any online seller that they all carry them so they're really available i've also got a youtube channel that's my same name has lots of free things to read articles essays short stories, poetry. Uh, there's over 500 things on there to read for free on YouTube. Um, if you want to find my podcasts and, and works, things like that, the easiest thing, just Google my name, Branch, like a tree, I-S, like Sam, O-L-E. I'm the only one, so it comes up right away. You don't have to go through a lot of pages. And all the links for everything I've written and everything I've done is right there, so it makes it easy. Amen. And where can people reach you if they have questions? Or yeah, great. Um, I, on my website, there's a meet the author link. And on that link, there's a box. You can send us an email, ask questions, make comments. Um, I respond to all emails and comments. Um, don't add any attachments, but just 
write it out in that box and just send it directly to us. Amen. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an honor. I'm pretty sure my guest as well as me has learned a lot from what you've shared. And I hope that people can see the brilliance and, you know, Christ that is reflected on uh, Branch Isole and, you know, check out some of his books and whatnot. And hopefully we'll have him on the show again. So if you don't mind, can you close us out in prayer? I'd love to, Jonathan. Let me make one comment first, though. If you've enjoyed what Jonathan and I have been sharing today, do me a favor. Go to the platform that you're hearing this on. Give Jonathan a good rating and review so he can continue to bring on guests who've got your best interests at heart. My Lord, God in heaven, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness against thee and thy divine majesty in thought, word, and deed. Have mercy on our souls. Grant that we may hereafter walk in newness of light and follow the light of the world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things I ask and pray in the name of Christ and all those who hear our words. Amen.